three, two, one. Welcome to the Dave the Dog Trainer podcast, episode 72. Um, today we are being joined by Taylor of Proper Paws Dog Training in Utah. Let's go ahead and pull up the Zoom and see if we can get this, uh, see if we can get this rock in here. Check. There it is. There. There we go. There she is. <laughs> All right. Record. This computer. Recording in progress. Perfect. All right. Now we play the game of everybody getting situated on audio, <laughs> video. Yeah. Hey, Taylor. Can you hear me? Hi. I can hear you. Wonderful. Can you, can you hear me? Yeah, let me just make sure we got everything situated here. <coughs> Turn that volume up a little bit. Get this thing full screen. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Going well. How are you guys? Not too shabby. Thanks Doing for good. joining us uh, nice and early on your time. <laughs> oh, yes. No problem. <laughs> of course. All right. So, um... Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate you coming on here. So I was just telling Josh right before we got this started, um, you know, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Obviously, we talked back and forth a couple of times here. Um, I, I told you when I first reached out to you, like I stumbled upon your page, like it was a couple of weeks ago, maybe like three or four weeks ago. And it was like the first time in a while I was like seriously impressed by like work that people were doing. I think, uh, you know, it, it's weird. Like I, I kind of stay away from a lot of like the social media dog trainers and stuff like that at this point, or a lot of the pages that I'll stumble upon on like Instagram and like Facebook and TikTok and all those things. Cause I feel like so much of it is just kind of like regurgitated the same stuff or like making like TikToks and stuff for the sake of just, I don't know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> making it information more than anything. So uh, I was really, really impressed. And then to further find out, obviously, we have some differences in our training, but also some similarities with things. I think it's going to make some really awesome conversation. So I appreciate you joining us with this. <clears throat> so Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited as well. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you kind of give everybody a little bit of a uh, introduction here, as well as us, obviously, because I just know you off of uh, the last couple of weeks on social media. So what's kind of your background in things? What's kind of your specialty and stuff? What got you started? All that. Yeah. Um, okay. So... I'm Taylor Frank. I am the owner and trainer of Proper Paws Dog Training here in Utah. Um, and I've actually been training for 22 years. Nice. So, or even a little bit over 22 years. Um, I started training dogs in 4-H when I was eight years old. And I did that until I was 18. And then when I was 10, I started competing in the American Kennel Club. And I did that for about another, well, on top of that, 10 years. Um, after I met my now husband, we ended up moving out to Georgia. And when we moved out in Georgia, I became the training manager for the largest golden retriever rescue in the Southeast. And when I was there, I started working with the dogs that were unadoptable due to the behaviors that they had. Um, so I started working with the dogs with behavioral issues, fear-based issues, reactivity, um, any form of aggression or anything like that. And my 
whole job was to get these dogs into or to a point where they could then be adopted. And so absolutely loved it. It was an incredible four years when I was out there. And after the dogs were able to get adopted, the owners then started like coming back and be like, well, I want to continue training. And I was like, well, don't really do this as like a business. They literally just do it for volunteer work and everything else. But so many owners started reaching out where I was like, okay, well, maybe this can be something. And that's how I started Proper Paws five years ago. So even though all of my past training has been in 4-H, American Kennel Club, competing in confirmation, agility, rally, and obedience, I've kind of fallen into the specialty being reactivity. Mm-hmm. That's definitely what it seemed like uh, from like your social media. Obviously, one of the most impressive things, obviously, is some of your before and after videos you have of the dog reactive dogs. Um, that's awesome. So, so obviously, you were doing AKC obedience at that point. You were just doing it like with your own dog. Yes. So I started out with my Yellow Lab Ranger, mm-hmm. and then after I retired him, I competed with my Australian Shepherd Dash. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and throughout all this time, obviously that's quite an extensive, you know, obviously history and dog training and stuff like that. Um, I I know one of the big things you said, right. When I reached out to you is you're, you're obviously a choice-based positive reinforcement trainer, which I think is really cool. How was that kind of always the case? Did you slow transition into that? Or is that just always been kind of how you've trained? So it's how I've always trained But to be completely honest, I didn't really know what it was called Mm -hmm. until about, I want to say four years ago is when I actually learned the terminology for it. Mm -hmm. So growing up, it's always been positive reinforcement. And I truly believe in the sense like training builds a bond that you don't get any other way with your dog. You can be absolutely in love, obsessed with your dog. They're your best friend no doubt about it, but training gives you something more. Of course. And so that's something that I've always believed in and everything that like right now, why I train owners, how to train their dogs is because I want them to have that relationship with their dogs. So it's always been in 4-H and AKC, it's always been positive reinforcement. Um, but about, I want to say it was about four, four and a half years ago, I came across another trainer called named Susan Garrett. Yep. She's an incredible trainer in Canada. And that's when I learned like our methods lined up like exact. Yeah. And so when I kind of found her and I learned like what she was doing, that's when I learned it was defined as choice base. Mm-hmm. And after I learned that, I was like, okay, like now I know like what to call it. Cause I never, I always felt a little bit different than like other trainers because mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily exactly as like the positive reinforcement trainers that I see on Instagram, kind of like you were saying, Instagram can kind of be a little bit false-ish or because you kind of show like in videos, kind of show what you want to show in a bit. But a lot of that is like, I never really felt like, well, that's not exactly what I'm doing, but I am positive reinforcement and like talking with balance trainers. I was like, well, that's also not what I'm doing, but (laughs) I'm like trying to do that, but. So after I found Susan Garrett, that's when I learned like, okay, choice base, positive reinforcement, this all makes complete sense. But for sure. Yeah. So always been doing it. Finally was able to define it about four or five years ago. Okay. What, 
So what exact can you define? Like, so how does it differ from like standard force free trainers and stuff? So it's not. Okay. So to kind of explain what choice base is choice based training allows our dogs to make choices that they want to make and based off of those choices that they make, if they're the choices we want them to make, then they're going to get rewarded. Mm -hmm. If they're not the choices we make, then ultimately, as we're beginning to learn, teach them new behaviors, ultimately nothing happens. And just like us, dogs learn just as much from getting it wrong as they do from getting it right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not necessarily different than like force free in the sense of like force free is they want to reward dogs in like pairing positive associations with items or anything like that but I think the way I view that I'm different is because a lot of the force free trainers that I see um they like to kind of do and there's absolutely nothing wrong with this and it is very beneficial for a lot of dogs but for instance when a dog sees a trigger often you see trainers like scatter treats and the dog goes and search for treats. I don't do that because I don't want my rewards to become a distraction. And I don't want my rewards to become a lure. And yes, while they are pairing positive association with that trigger, and ultimately that's the same, but instead of scattering treats and having my dog go search for treats as a trigger walks by, I want to teach my dog to redirect their attention onto me. And then when you're focused on me, then you'll get that reward. Mm -hmm. And I do like when it comes to treat based training treats, just like any other dog training tool or dog. Yeah. It's it's a tool. It's a dog training tool in the sense of doing that, but just like everything else, you don't want to become dependent and rely on it Mm -hmm. because there are going to be days where you don't have food with you, or there's going to be a day where your tool kind of fails. And so you want to have that nice in between where you have that reward for your dog, but they're not dependent on it. Yeah. And so when I teach dogs to seek value through myself, like my dogs seek value through me or my clients dogs to seek value through them as handlers, then we're able to re- teach the dog to redirect their attention away from that trigger onto the handler. And then they get that reward and it's more focused and it's kind of more I almost want to say like zoned in and centered rather than yep. scatter and search. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely feels like, um, you know, you're more the vehicle for the reward and for the good stuff than like we're just seeking solely that treat. And it's interesting hearing you talk about it. I'm not super, super familiar with like AKC obedience and stuff. I'm a little bit, but I've never really dabbled in it myself. But hearing you kind of talk about your differences, uh, definitely you could tell the the kind of the competitive dog training side of things, like that avenue of stuff, how that's influenced your behavior. Because it was the same deal. Like my kind of history in dog training is I started off like, I mean, I went through a lot of little phases when I got my first dog and I went to, you know, basically an old school yank and crank trainer, then went to like a force free trainer, then kind of found there was a local trainer that was very into the ring sport stuff. Uh, and as I got into that stuff, it was like, just pff, like my whole world exploded as far as like the technical side of dog training and really understanding creating motivation and teaching complex behaviors and how much can really get accomplished utilizing <clears throat> enforcement and food. Because obviously, you know, so many dog trainers, at least in the Cleveland area, it primarily was just like prong collar training, you know, guys that have been doing this for 40 years and they got their old school style and that's just kind of what they do. Right. 
And, you know, I learned a lot from obviously doing that kind of stuff. But as soon as I realized how much more there was to it, it was, it was obviously awesome. But <clears throat> past just that, you know, when we're training for competitive purposes, you have that end goal in mind of like, I'm going to need to compete at some point and not going to be in a training session, right? And I'm not going to be able to use lures and use all of this additional help and, you know, be constantly rewarding my dog for those types of things. So you learn about obviously reinforcement schedules and all that kind of stuff and teaching the dog to seek the value through you and using your markers so that, you know, I could use indirect rewards and they're all the way over there, but the dog is still seeking it through me and stuff like that. And I've always felt like when I look at a lot of people that use treats, whether it's force free <laughs> trainers or balance trainers, that link of understanding that component of things has been the missing link behind them not being able to find as much success with that stuff as they want. And ultimately them hitting that point where they're like, you know, how many times do you hear, well, if I don't have the treats in my hand, the dog won't listen to me. You know what I mean? And that, whether, you know, clients of mine have worked with force-free trainers or not, has always been frustrating because it's like, well, that just means you're not really doing it correctly, <laughs> you know? So very, very cool. Um, so Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, kind of going off is in the sense of like, you're saying like with the competition when sure. it comes to that, yeah, we train our dogs and we train our dogs a lot. I yeah. mean, I'm, when I was like in the deep end, when it came to training, I was literally working with my dog like 24 hours a week Yep. where we train like an hour every night, Monday through Friday, competed like yeah. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and did all that. And we traveled along the West coast competing. And yes, when you're practicing, we use rewards and it's all like game-based training. And we want our dogs to want to be with us yep. and want to work with us. Because if your dog doesn't want to be there, the moment you get in the ring, it is very apparent. Yep. Like <laughs> your dog is either disengaged with you, doesn't want to work with you, or they're distracted by like everything else around them. Yeah. And when you're competing, you can't lose treats. Sure. And so when you're doing that, you can't be dependent on it. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's important. Like the way you handle the food is what makes a really <laughs> big difference with that. Um, and kind of what you're saying is like a lot of the times if people aren't like showing the treat to their dog, and I hear often, it's in the sense of like, if I don't have a treat, my dog doesn't listen, or my dog is fantastic as long as I have food. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, well, what happens if your dog slips through that front door at the perfect moment, another yeah. dog walks by, and you don't know that other dog. Yeah. And so it's having those situations. But so the way I like to do it is I have treats on me, but my treats might be in a pocket behind my back. Hell, if it's like cheese, I might have it in my mouth. Sure. <laughs> and so then when it's like time to reward, I'll do a verbal reward, small pause. And then it's like, wow, look what you get. Yeah. And then you get that food. So then it's like the main reward is my verbal reward and my engagement with my dogs and me. Mm -hmm. And then it's that extra cherry on top. And the dog was like, yes, I want that again. How do I, let's do this more. Yeah. And so that's why really, it's not when it comes to choice base, the, the whole purpose of it is to not force manipulate or lure your dog. Mm -hmm. And that's a really big part in the sense of like the luring or using treats as a distraction. That's sure. when you become dependent on them. Yeah. hundred percent. And so just through, you know, scanning through your Instagram page and stuff <clears throat> a lot, I mean, a majority of the videos you're posting seem like they are uh, obviously the reactivity stuff. So your leash walking related stuff. Uh, I've seen a lot of like threshold <laughs> obedience work, which has also been another thing I looked at. I was like, man, that's pretty impressive stuff. Um, 
and, and a little obviously a little bit of like place work and stuff like that I've seen. I'm sure you do way more than that, but that seemed like what's been like the highlights on your page. Those things I can completely like those like the choice stuff you're you're kind of explaining here and and the the teaching the dog to make the correct decision or or rewarding the correct decision makes a lot of sense. Now when you get into do you primarily focus on those things with your clients or do you get into a lot of like actual like we're working commands and this and that and at that point is that where you teach the luring process and shaping behaviors and stuff or what does that look like? Does that make sense? <clears throat> so yes to both. I were a lot of it is a lot of my clients are clients that have dogs with reactivity yep. in some sort of a human or dog or whatever. Um, I do have clients that obviously is like, I have puppy programs and I work with clients that just need basic obedience and all of that. But so there is, there's a lot of place work. There is a lot when it comes to like stays and comes, um, comes, are always, always included within my dog's training mm -hmm. or my client's dog's training, I should say, because I wholeheartedly believe out of everything we teach our dogs, a recall is like the one thing that could save your dog's life. hundred percent. And so that's something where it's like, this is going to be included regardless of what your goals are. Mm -hmm. And so, but everything that I teach is 100% custom to my client's goals. Yep. So if their goals are to get like their CGC and to move into therapy, then mm -hmm. we focus on what that dog needs. If their goals are, I would just love to be able to take my dog out to Home Depot with me on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. Let's do distraction training. Let's do healing. Let's do leave it. And being able to focus on that. Um, a lot of the clients that I work with, like I said, do have the reactivity, um, but thresholds are also just important because a lot of the dogs I work with are flight risks. Yeah. And again, we, the main purpose of training for our dogs is, especially when it comes to basic obedience is safety mm -hmm. because we want to train for the moments we hope never happen. Of course. So when they do happen, we're ready for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. So, um, you know, obviously recall, you were talking that as an example here. And, and I would agree like that's arguably one of the most important commands that people can have. Yeah. Now, I think, you know, and this is, this is, so, so you brought up an interesting point when we were talking yesterday, I believe, where you were like a lot of people's like questions on your page and stuff like that is like, how is this stuff possible? Obviously using just positive reinforcement. And I think both you and I know, like it is possible, right? You obviously, you know, you've shown it right. And past just that, like you really, I feel like until people really learn to leverage it, they can't understand just how powerful like positive reinforcement is as a motivator, right? That being said, like you get into stuff and I look at like my dogs, for example, right? They've all been trained primarily the way that I used to train when I was doing sport dog stuff. They're incredibly motivated. They have phenomenal food drive, stuff like that. Um, but you know, you get into then the use of like an e-collar or something, right? And for me, like anytime I go off leash to this day, like I just don't feel totally comfortable unless I have that on them as like my backup insurance policy, uh, safety policy with things. So how do you, you know, where do, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question, right? How do you feel so confident in with flight risk dogs, right? Like being able to combat that and safely say like this dog can be off leash and be reliable and stuff like that, you know, not knowing what the possible outside reinforcements can be in different environments. Does that make sense? Yes. So I totally understand kind of like what you're like, 
what you're asking to go for that. So when I'm working with like flight risks or dogs on their recalls or anything like that, um, even though I don't use e-callers, sure. I still use other tools that allow safety and accountability for our dogs. Yep. Um, especially like when it comes to choice space, I'm going to give my dog a choice on 99% of the behaviors that I teach them Yep. until I know, like, you know, this, and I need you to do this type thing. Like if it's safety for, or whatever reason, recall though, is the one thing where I'm like, you don't really get a choice. Sure. Like if I say, come, I need you to come. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so that's something where, but the thing is like, we don't <clears throat> want it to be like a recall is always, always, always praised. Sure. And I tell my clients, like, if like, say you're working with a flight risk and your dog gets out and they go for a 10 minute run around your neighborhood as you're trying to catch them and they're not coming, yeah. <laughs> but after that 10 minutes, they come to you, grab the collar, yeah. walk them home, yeah. do not correct them. Yes, It is a yes, good come. And then you can walk home silent if you are upset. But the thing is, your dog's not going to correlate that correction with their 10 minute joy run around the sure. neighborhood. They're going to correlate that correction with coming back to you. E yes. Um, and like, yes. And so while I was like with the, I don't use e-collars, what sure. I do use is a long lead. Yep. And so long lead for those who don't know is just a 50 foot leash. I use 50 foot. You can get them in so many different sizes. Yeah. But with that 50 foot leash, I'm allowed to let my dog drag that leash. Yep. I don't handle it. Worst case scenario, they make a choice I don't like. I can step on it, call yep. them back, and use that leash for the accountability. Because mm -hmm. that accountability is the most important part. If you don't have accountability and you're teaching your dog recall, do not call them to you. Because if you can't guarantee that they're going to come to you or you can't hold the accountability if they make that choice not to come to you, we don't want to teach them to ignore us. And so we don't want to teach them that we call them three, four times and they stick to a smell yeah. or they see a bird and they want to go chase that instead, because then sure. you're like saying like, come, come, yeah. come. And they're learning that they get to just run in the opposite direction and, yeah. and nothing happens. So you do like, regardless when you're teaching off-leash training and any off-leash behaviors yeah. is you want to start with that accountability. Um, and you want to be able to hold to it and tell your dog starts to show you mm -hmm. that they're making the choices we want them to make and they're seeking value through us rather than that other dog across the field. Yeah. Understood. And that's, I think the thing that a lot of people forget when it comes to off-leash training or reactivity and using choice or using positive reinforcement with their training is there's other components that go into it yep. rather than the whole, my dog just doesn't want to listen to me or my dog is ignoring me or whatever it might be. Um, and the thing is when we are working with our dogs, there's like, regardless of how you're training, you're working against the three D's, which is distance, duration, distraction. Yep. And those are going to be your three main challenges. Anytime you're teaching your dog a new behavior, distraction, is obviously the hardest one in the sense of we can't always control the distractions around us and we don't know what's going to come up. Sure. But distance, I think, is the one that people kind of forget the most. Mm -hmm. um, and distance isn't necessarily how far away you are from your dog. For example, putting them in a sit stay and walking away and you're 20 feet away from your dog. 
but distance is also how far away your dog is from a trigger. Yep. And if your dog is too close to a trigger, reactivity, like defined, is just an overreaction to a situation. And if they are too close to that trigger, they're going to react in the way that they innately want to react. And most of the time it's Mm fear-based and the goal is to get that trigger away from them. So if you start further away and then begin to pair positive association with the trigger that they are more than likely afraid of, then you can start to slowly move in and get closer and closer and closer until they learn to redirect their attention away from that trigger onto you, even when you walk by it on a normal everyday, like on the street type situation. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And, you know, going back to the the original question that I asked too, like in the end of the day, like you're right, like there are so many components, no matter how you're training, there's so many components at play as far as the tools you're using. And like you were saying, food's a tool, right? Long line's a tool, e-collar's a tool, right? Any of those things are tools and your behavior in general, or at least your dog's behavior is always going to be contingent on some sort of constant reinforcement, like forever. Right. So, you know, whether you go back to the food for a little bit, right. Or you go back to the long line for a little bit, or you go back to the e-collar for a little bit, as long as you fall through about the second you start noticing an issue, right. Going back to like working through that and preventing it from being a consistent thing. You know, it, I, I guess you're right. It, it technically doesn't really matter which one you're using, um, as far as ensuring that reliability with stuff. Um, yeah. And talking about reinforcement, just kind of like in the lines, every behavior our dogs have is because at one point or another, it was reinforced, reinforced. Yep. either inappropriately or appropriately. Mm-hmm. So a really great example is like dogs that don't seek value through their owners because yep. they're distracted from that other dog across the field. Mm-hmm likely because say you want to play and their reactive behavior is out of frustration in the sense like they can't go to it. Most of the time that is because that dog has learned that if they pull hard enough (laughs) or don't listen, that they get to run up to that dog and Uh, play with it. And that is a very clear inappropriate reinforcement. It got the reward of playing with the dog. And so it's still where a lot of times like, as owners, we're like, well, we never taught my dog to jump on gas, or we never taught my dog to run away sure. and go play with the dog. Well, it's like, I mean, yeah. you didn't purposely teach it, but <laughs> yeah. when they're really cute puppies and our friends come over and that jumps up and we pet it and give it attention and love, mm-hmm. then when it's 50 pounds, it still thinks that when our friends come over, they can jump and get love. Yeah. And so it's kind of like those behaviors. I mean, puppy training starts the moment your dog comes home. Yep. And it's never too early, but I'm also going to very strongly also add, it is never too late. Yeah. I don't care if your dog is nine years old. Yep. It is never too late to train your dog. A hundred percent. hundred percent. You know, it's funny. You're talking about like uh, things being rewarded at some point. Another key factor I see with, you know, dogs with, uh, you know, uh, dog reactivity issues, at least more so the dogs that like other dogs, is the constant on-leash greetings being a huge cue to those frustrated responses. And yes. then when we're holding them back, right, and telling them now it's not appropriate for you to go say hi to that dog, they just can't, like, control their shit, you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. I like to handle those situations with re- release cues. Sure. Um, so just like the release cues we would use at boundaries or on place or mm-hmm. anything like that. I also love adding release cues for engagement. So I teach our dogs to seek value through us as handlers until you get that release cue, Mm -hmm. then have fun. 
If I say break, knock yourself out. Go play with that dog. It's appropriate. It's safe. You can go for it. Mm -hmm. But until I give you that release command, I need you with me. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so obviously we're kind of segueing into dog reactivity here. Now, I, I know for me, that's the number one behavioral issue people contact me over, right? Like I think for most trainers out there, like that is just like the absolute pinnacle of issues people reach out to you about. Cause it's like everybody's dog just goes yes. bananas when they see other dogs. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't think people are actually aware of how common reactive it's behaviors so are. It's so common. Yeah. I know. And it, it's kind of, it's discouraging for the owners that mm-hmm. adopt or get a dog that become reactive because sure. they go outside and they see all of the, like the dog friendly dogs running yep. around at the park yep. and they're like, I want one of those. Yep. And then they get a dog that has a reactive behavior. But yeah. the one thing that I stress and as someone who owns, like when I adopted my Australian shepherd, I had never owned a dog with reactive behaviors before. And sure that girl flipped my world upside down. (laughs) And so, but the thing is they're not the dog you expect, Mm -hmm. but they teach you so much. Mm -hmm. And the thing is like, just because you don't have a dog that doesn't like other dogs Mm -hmm. or doesn't like other people or doesn't like, like, like you said, loses their shit on the leash when they see another dog walk by one, it does not make them a bad dog of course, at all. Mm -hmm. But two, it also doesn't mean you can't get them to a point where just because they can't play with that other dog doesn't mean you can't get them to a point where you can easily manage them and handle them around that other dog. Yep, 100%. And something else interesting with dog reactive dogs that I think, and and in a lot of cases, like one of my first or second sessions with dog reactive dogs is always setting up like a controlled like play group for them because it's so encouraging for the owners sometimes to see these dogs that they've never in their life been able to socialize because they're so crazy on the leash to see that nine out of 10 Mm -hmm. times of those dogs, it does not mean they're aggressive either, right? Like a lot of those dogs, are yeah. unbelievably social dogs. They're just their arousal level is just <laughs> entirely too high, and the frustration level is entirely too high. And we've never socialized them in an appropriate way before, so we've never really gotten to see the real dog. <clears throat> so sometimes they could see that, and they could be like, "Oh wow, like well, this makes me feel a lot better about the reactivity." And then past that, it's funny. I'll do sessions that we got like a couple like local busy parks uh, around the corner from our facility, and we'll take the dogs there. And, you know, maybe the dog's having a bad day, right? And barking mm-hmm. at every other dog that they see and stuff like that. And the owner's kind of struggling with them a little bit. And sometimes I'll just stop them and I'll just be like, wait a minute, look around right now. And we'll see like seven other dogs that are freaking out at other dogs too. And I'll be like, nobody's <laughs> looking at you right now. There's yeah. nothing to be embarrassed about right now. Like, I promise it's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Super funny. Yes. That kind of stuff. So um, what do you think? So getting back to like, obviously you kind of touched on, you know, right now we live in a very, very dog friendly society, obviously, right? Like the things that we could do with our dogs now, Mm -hmm. like versus five years ago, six years ago, 10 years ago, stuff like that. It's ridiculous. Like every store you could take your dog to every patio, you could take your dog to every park. There's off leash dogs running around this, that. Yeah. Why do you think reactivity has gotten so much more like prevalent than it was before? Or, or do you think it's always been that way and we just didn't see it? I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. I think, I think one, it's more noticeable because people are understanding reactivity and learning how to work with it, 
manage it, train it. Um, and those are a lot of times the owners of like, I don't want to hide my dog inside anymore. Yep. Like just because my dog is reactive doesn't mean it can't have a fulfilled life of hiking and going out into public because you can get it to a point where you can manage them and they learn to seek trust through you and they don't overreact because a lot of the times, like I had mentioned earlier, is the overreaction is due to like fear or maybe like a sense of false alpha or maybe in the sense of, and when I say false alpha, it's not necessarily like, I want you to be the yeah, alpha yeah, yeah. of your dog. I was going to ask no. you what you meant by that. It's yeah. more of a sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, but yeah, and more in the sense where the dog's overwhelmed, they don't feel like anyone's handling it. So they need to handle it, but they're literally the least equipped to do so. Uh, 100%, yeah. Um, but yes. So whatever that, but a lot of the owners now that are adopting dogs and having reactivity or they have dogs and they learn reactive behaviors or anything like that is they're, they're kind of coming out more. I mm -hmm. feel like where they're kind of, they're being empowered and they're being like, you know, I don't need to hide my dog. Like yep. I can go out and I can do this. Um, but a lot of that, where I know of fear, like a lot of my clients has is the fact of people don't leash their dogs because they're friendly. Mm -hmm. Well, mm. you also have to think of the other dog, yep. which is really important for that. And so that's also where a lot of like owners who are training their dogs might be hesitant in the sense to come out. But I think the other part of it is the dog parks, mm -hmm. honestly, and how we socialize our dogs as puppies, because as I'm sure you guys are aware, every dog has fear imprint stages. Yep. And during those stages, if something happens that the dog views as traumatic, it will alter their behaviors, either in a fearful way or a reactive way. I mean, mm -hmm. they're both fear-based, but the dog will either hide away from dogs. Like say they went to a dog park, got into a fight. They might become fearful of dogs in the sense where they don't want to be around other dogs, or they might become fearful with other dogs in the sense that they become reactive to those other dogs. And a lot of the owners that I work with have never heard of a fear imprint stage mm -hmm. with their dogs. So they just take them to parks. They think that's going to be fine. I'm socializing my dog. My dog gets to play with other dogs, but dog parks can be chaotic yep. and they aren't always controlled. And you don't know that other dog that your dog's playing with. And if something happens, it can change your dog's behavior. Yep. And I do, I work with a lot of clients where it's like, well, my dog was really good with other dogs. And then this happened and then they yeah. hate other dogs. And it's like, okay, well, that was the situation. 99% of the time it happens within one of the fear and print stages. And then we need to just go from there. And once we know the situation that caused it, it's like, it's a good, like you can understand it. Um, but I think it, I think it is a lot of the sense of people don't socialize their dogs. I don't want to say like the word, like appropriately, but there are other ways to socialize your dog than taking them to a dog park. Yep. And I think that is a lot of like the misunderstanding. And yep. then it's <clears throat> kind of just like what you were saying is the sense of like people who do own reactive dogs are learning that they can do more and there are ways to work with their dogs. Yep. Yeah. It, uh, the other thing on socialization too, I find is that people think their dogs need so much more socialization than they actually need. 
you know, like the thing with poppies is like literally everybody's like every person they see out on the street or in the store or they set up like parties where they have like their whole extended family come over just to pet the dog for like an hour and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, <laughs> it's such a it's it, you know, people don't realize, you know, whether it's fear periods or whether it's just with an adult dog, like every social interaction you have can either go well or not go well. And it's like we want to stack those wins. And the more that we're doing it, it's like the more opportunity for something bad to happen. And it's like, you know, every time something bad happens, like you just you're just kind of setting yourself back a little bit with it. So I kind of tell people yeah, like, and I would almost go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? Oh, no, I was just going to say, oh, you know, I was I, just going to say, <laughs> there's like a slight delay, which is what's making it awkward right now. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I tell people, you know, I want to obviously get, you know, we get a dog that comes in reactive, aggressive, whatever, right? I want to get them to a place where we can socialize them, right? We've kind of checked the box like, okay, cool. This dog is not traumatized around other dogs right now. This dog can interact in a more appropriate way than they were before. And then like at that point, it's like you're kind of doing like, I call it like maintenance socialization more than like needing to constantly socialize your dog. Where like my dogs, for example, like they're social, right? Like they could play with other dogs and they're fine. And you know, they all have slightly different temperaments with other dogs, but, but they're all good with other dogs. But it's like, I'm not taking them to the shop to socialize every single day, right? They're not playing with other dogs two times a day, three times a day, stuff like that. It's like maybe, you know, three or four times a month, I'll let them play with some new dogs and stuff like that and have it be nice and controlled and supervised and make sure it's really positive for them and just make sure I'm maintaining those social skills as opposed to constantly pushing the envelope and being like, I need to make them more social and more social and more social, you know? So I think that's a, a false misconception yeah. I see with a lot of owners or newer owners, I should say. So go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and I would even argue in the sense of socialization doesn't mean play yeah. socialization mm -hmm. also means working around other dogs yep. and learning to build relationships with other dogs and just in the way of like they're learning that that dog's not going to just like immediately run up to them and jump on them yeah. or play with them or whatever it is but a lot of the time it's kind of you're right it's like people kind of like over like they're like my dog needs to be friendly and social i need to get to the park yep. every single day and it's like well why don't you just take it to a dog friendly store yeah. and work with your dog past other dogs? Because if you're letting your dog go up to other dogs and people, and while it's positive for their association, it's also could potentially be negative towards your training. Of course. Because then your dog's learning to speak value through them, mm -hmm. not you. Yep. So we ultimately, like, especially as your dog gets older, we want them to learn to be neutral to other dogs and other people and pay attention to us. But I mean, like one of my girls, she's an Anatolian great Pyrenees mix. Both breeds are guardians. Yep. Both breeds are bred to be in isolation. And if they're not socialized, they can become dog aggressive or reactive. Yep. And she heard though, for her, she doesn't have a lot of confidence. And so like, she can't have like dogs just like run up to her sure. or it has to be the right temperament of the dog to play with her. So her socialization is she's my distraction dog during training sessions. So yeah. she's around other dogs and she learns to build relationships and trust with other dogs, but she doesn't play with them. Yeah. My one trainer so, has a dog like so that. Oh, sorry. Good. <laughs> no, no, no. I was done. You're good. Let's yeah. <laughs> no. So my one trainer has a dog like that. She has a, a Dutch shepherd who's like nine now at this point. And same deal. Like he 
was a handful when he was younger, you know, like definitely had a lot of aggression issues, a lot of reactivity issues, stuff like that. Again, typical testy Dutch Dutch shepherd, right? And he's like the perfect distraction dog. She uses him in all all of her lessons. He he'll hold his bed stay, he'll, you know, walk around the other dogs, he'll, you know, give a little bit of interaction here and there, but like he provides exactly what he needs to mm-hmm. provide for that. And that like environmental socialization for him of just being around all that stuff going on has been like the greatest thing for him for her, you know. Um, so definitely one thing, you know, so, um, another thing I learned from like kind of the sport dog world is when I got my first Malinois, I got him when he was like maybe like four months old or so. And excuse me, you know, everything was focused on just engagement in public and teaching him to ignore absolutely anything around him, right? Like, obviously, like, because we needed to know when he would go in trial and stuff like that, that regardless, especially in Mondio when everything is so bonkers, like on the field and stuff like that, we needed to know he was going to be super neutral to those things. And it's funny because like, he is obviously the most handful of all of the dogs that I own, obviously, but he's the one that it's funny. Like some of my trainers that know him from like, you know, seeing him work and seeing him in drive and stuff like that. They, they used to, until they saw it firsthand, like laugh at me when I would tell them, like, if I had to pick any of my dogs to like take in public with me and like, you know, whatever, be around all sides, sorts of stuff going on and know he would be the best behaved. Like he has always been the one that I would pick for that kind of stuff because of all of that groundwork that I taught initially and the focus on the environmental socialization as opposed to the interaction, like you were saying. And that's why I tell people to get puppies. It's like, man, just like get them around stuff, but just like, yeah, same deal. Like, you know, do engagement drills and stuff like that, but just like, don't let people constantly interact with them so that you could avoid all of those outside reinforcements like you were talking about when they were young and just shape that expectation really early. Um, and then, you know, past yeah, that, I... good. <laughs> well, one, one last point I was going to say on it. And then, you know, as I, you know, kind of my training approach has shifted over the years and stuff and, and just like kind of some of the things that I teach people, you know, I, I, I kind of started like ironing out and teaching this philosophy of like, you know, there's three types of socialization you could do with your dogs. You have environmental socialization, you have dog socialization, and you have human socialization. And I try to tell them that general, as a general rule, you should only ever do one of those at a time. Meaning, if I go to a new environment with my dog, I'm never going to socialize with them with another person or another dog while they're still getting used to that environment. If I am socializing my dog with a new dog, I'm never going to socialize them with the people that are there also, meaning them not interacting with them. And if I'm doing human socialization with them, I'm never going to have another dog in the mix also to try to make things as clear as possible as far as them developing those positive associations with those things. And I'd be interested to hear your opinions on uh, that as well as, you know, you were getting ready to say something when I was talking about my Malinois as well. Oh yeah, no, no, I was just going to agree in the sense of like with competitive training, when I did compete in obedience, rally, agility, confirmation, you're not only in a ring, like for obedience, for example, you could be in a ring with 15 to 20 other dogs holding a downstay for five minutes while you're out of the arena. Sure. And so you need your dog to learn to ignore those distractions. But even when you're by yourself, in obedience with like the off-leash healing patterns or anything like that, um, you're still surrounded by hundreds of dogs and thousands of people and cheering and loud noises and barking and smells. And so it's the same thing. Like you need to teach that distraction training and to teach your dog to seek value through you and to stay focused on you. Because Mm -hmm. in that moment, regardless of what's going around you, 
you guys are like there to perform and you're there to like show your skill level for the judge. Yeah. But yeah. So no, I was completely agree. And when it comes to kind of like the socialization, my puppy programs, I typically have about 10 dogs and 20 owners per class. And most of the time, those dogs, and that's like a six week program. Most of the time, those dogs don't ever play with each other because they're learning to work alongside of distractions and other dogs and other people. But what we do like teach them to do is how to walk up to another owner and another dog and how to walk away without pulling and like paying attention to the owner Mm -hmm. and being able to do that. But yeah, no, definitely like with that socialization, it really is important when it comes to teaching that distraction training, because there's going to be distractions around you all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then with your other question in the sense of like handling the different like environments, dogs and people at different times, Um, totally like 100%. I do agree with that to an extent. Um, but I'm a huge believer, like training in new environments is really important because I really am a huge believer that if your dog can't do a command in like 10 different locations, they don't yet know that command. Yeah. It's not general. And so we want Mm -hmm. to be able to, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be able to teach them that new environments and still working and all that stuff. The only thing that I would kind of change and just because like a lot of my clients deal with um, fear-based behaviors Mm -hmm. is if you have a dog that lacks confidence and has more fear in the sense of their goal is to run away or to get away from a new location, then I will sometimes use what I call as an anchor dog sure. in the okay. sense of yep. it may or may not be a dog that they know, but it's a dog that holds confidence that yep. can show them that like, we're good. Yeah. And so like, if you take like a, I don't know, I have a lot of times I'll take a dog that is afraid of people or crowds. And this is after doing like a few weeks of training and I want to take them just to like walk outside of a store with people going in and out, but it's a dog that every time a person walks out, they try to dart. Yep. Granted, they're on leash and they're under control, but they try and dart. I might bring my golden retriever honor to just sit next to them where she's not afraid of people and she can just sit there calmly. And so that dog kind of has like a little bit of that anchor of being like, yep. well, they're okay. So I think I'm okay. Yeah. And then they can, then we can get to a point where we build that positive association every time someone walks out or in and they redirect their attention onto the owner and then they get that reward. So then we're starting to build confidence and that positive association with triggers. Yeah, that's, that's a good, good exception to it also. Cause I guess I do something similar as far as like, if some dogs come to the facility and they're a little overly stressed out at first, sometimes just like like we talked about the reactive dogs, like having a nice like play date for them or something like that. If they're overly stressed, sometimes can help them loosen up a little bit before the training starts. Um, so yeah, no, that, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a good point, obviously. Um, okay. So question. So uh, there's been kind of a trend that I've been noticing. Um, and I don't even know if it's a trend. It's probably not even a new thing, but I've seen a lot more either force-free trainers or we'll say choice-based trainers, obviously, because that's what, uh, that's what you do that are using like the face halties and stuff with dogs. What is your opinion on the use of that falling into that realm versus considering that something like an aversive? Yes. Um, And I kind of feel like that's where I'm a little bit in between 
when it comes to force free and balanced and sure, you know, right there, because a lot of, there are a lot of like force free trainers that won't use head halters yep. because like you said, it, they are, can be defined as aversive. Um, but when it comes to using a gentle leader or a halty, since there are the two main types of a head halter, um, can you explain the difference between those two? Purpose. Oh, is it, or you're getting ready to. Yeah. 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 No. Um, so a head halter, when it comes to a gentle leader with mm-hmm. a head halter, a gentle leader has a small part that goes over the nose and then clips behind the ear and the clip falls right below the dog's octopus, which yep. bump on the dog's head. Um, the gentle leader has fewer straps. So I like to use gentle leaders when it comes to dogs that have reactivity and they're just kind of like pulling. Um, The thing with a gentle leader is, and let me kind of take a step back and say, when you use a head halter, if it is fitted appropriately, there is nothing a dog can't do with one on that they can with one off, including pulling. If it's trained incorrectly, a dog can still learn to pull with a head halter. The point of a head halter is not to be used as a muzzle to prevent the dog from doing anything (laughs) that they need to do, such as pulling themselves, eating, drinking, barking, whatever. The point is to give you control. Because when I handle owners, like one of my most popular videos is the German shepherd named Kytus. Mm -hmm. His owner, super petite. Real cute, real sure. petite. He is a big, strong dog. Yeah. So to be able to give more control and safety for her, we used a halty. Now, the difference with a halty versus a gentle leader is a halty has additional straps between the part that goes over the muzzle and clips behind the ears. So it is less likely for a dog to slip out of a halty than it is for a gentle leader. Sure. So the dogs that I choose to use halties on are the dogs that their reaction is to start thrashing their body yeah. and to do anything they can to get away to get to that dog. And most of the time when I use halties, it's more along the lines of like, hey, we're kind of veering more towards the aggression side yeah. rather than the reactivity side. Mm-hmm. And so a gentle leader dog can slip out of it, yeah. especially if you handle it incorrectly, where if the dog like pivots around where their head faces you yeah. and then pulls against you as you pull against them, that muzzle part's going to slip off. Yep. A halty doesn't do that because the halty, the part that's on the muzzle kind of starts to act as a martingale yeah. where when you pull, it kind of gets a little bit more snug. So then when they do relax and you let go, then it loses. Yes. So they can't slip out of it. Do they function so the same way as far as do they both connect like right under the chin as far as turning the head? Okay. Yes. Cause I know the third kind of option. Yes. A lot of people use is like the transitional leash, which is really just goes around the, and I think the point oh, of that right. is it's like, there's supposed to be like a calming point right there. Right. Isn't that the idea? Yeah, no. Um, a lot of times and a lot of with the controversy when it comes to head halters is sure. like the sensitivity of the dog's nose. Yeah. Um, where it, the dog, it is like, yes, it is, but the point is we're not putting constant pressure yep. on our dog's muzzles and having that control. But the thing is, when you are working with reactivity or aggression base and your dog 
overreacts to a situation, we still need to have control. Of course. And if we have control over the dog's head, we have yeah. control over the dog's body. Yeah. And so the thing is when you use harnesses or even just like flat collars, that like the point yeah. of tension when it comes to when you're pulling that dog is at the strongest part of their body, which yep. is their shoulders. Yeah. And so when you're doing that, it doesn't give you that control, especially uh, depending on the dog's behavior, I could say. Yeah. Um, the other thing with a halty that gives extra security is while the halty does link under the dog's chin to your leash, there is an additional strap that yes. also links to the dog's collar. Yep. With a with the gentle leader, it only links to the leash. So if it slips off. Mm-hmm then you are reliant on the part that clips behind their ears to act as a collar, but you also added about six inches to your leash that you now need to get under control. Mm-hmm, yeah. So that it, it depends on the dog's behaviors on which one I use, yep. but I, I do. I get a lot of people that will come onto my Instagram and they'll notice that I use head halters with certain dogs and they don't like it. Yeah. But I think that's okay. I mean, I'm here for the dog. I'm here for the owner Yes. and whatever we need to like help that dog and help that owner. We're good. Yeah. We're and, good. <laughs> and that's what I really uh, respect and appreciate about, you. you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, a lot of people's first thought when they look at that, they're like, Oh, that's not positive reinforcement or something like that, you know, or that's not force free or whatever. But it's like, that's like half of my problem with like having so many like labels for things. Like I think they're, they're, they're important now for people to be able to understand generally what type of trainer that they're getting. But like, you could like trap yourself so easily where it's like, well, like, you know, technically you're using negative reinforcement mm-hmm. here. Like technically like that's a correction or this or that, but it's like, yeah, in the end of the day, like I said, like I, I completely agree with your use of it. I mean, like ultimately it's no different, you know, obviously it's different, but it's it's kind of the same as, you know, the reason why a lot of balance trainers use tools is because of the importance of not that this tool is fixing your problems, right? Everybody says, like, you know, you're going to no. make everything worse or it's going to make the dog more fearful. And we could, that's a whole other conversation, obviously. But generally, we're using those tools to give the owner a better sense of control so they can then work through the actual problem. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's- Yeah, and the, <laughs> the other thing when it comes to, like, using head halters or honestly any tool yeah. that you use you cannot out of out of the all of the years I've been using a dental layer, which has honestly been like the past past five years, mm-hmm. I've been utilizing head halters. Sure. Um, you cannot slap a head halter on your dog and go for a walk. Nope. It will not work. <laughs> Especially I that tool. I've you. seen some like dogs really freak out having those put on the first <laughs> time before. You know, it's so oh, weird. Yeah. The introduction, the introduction is the most important part. Yep. Because the thing is like. The way you introduce the head halter is mm-hmm. really important for the dog's comfort level and how to use sure. it and how the pressure feels like and all of that and how to react to it. Yeah. And it's really important. But the other part of it is you cannot rely on it. Nope. You still need to teach your dog the foundation of training yep. and be able to teach them to redirect their attention and to have impulse control and yep. to not overreact to a situation. Yep. But that head halter just gives you that extra step or that extra level of security. Yeah. 
It's again, any tool, like even food, right? Like you can't just give your dog a treat and expect your problems to go away, right? There's so much Mm -hmm. technique that goes into how you're adding this stuff. And it's like, it's again, not a head halty, but like, you know, we, and like our first couple sessions, we'll use a pinch collar with the dogs. And it's like, same deal. Like you were kind of saying, like, if you try to rely on that tool solely without the actual training involved in it, like it's going to, it's not going to work, right? Mm -hmm. Just, it doesn't function that way. Right. Right. And a lot of people, unfortunately will see certain tools as kind of the magic solution for things, which I think to uh, the force free community's credit is a lot of their criticism over balance training is that it's too tool centric as far as like, yeah, just get the e-collar and your problems will be solved or get the prong collar and your, your problems will be solved. And it yeah. just doesn't work that way. You know, there's just so much more to it than that. Right. You can't, <clears throat> you can't rely on a tool. You still need to teach the foundation yep. of training. A hundred percent. Okay. So getting into, how, so obviously you, you are, you're using a head halty, obviously, right? The way that we use it, obviously it's a pressure and release system, right? You're using negative reinforcement, right? Do how much, you know, education goes into teaching the clients about that concept? Tons. Yep. Tons. I, I stress heavily when it comes to, and I don't use head halters on every dog. Sure. Um, if you go through my account, like you see a lot of dogs that learn how to heal without it, yep. or they like reactive behaviors, like are, they're fine without it. Like one of my most recent ones was, was a mentor schnauzer named Milo. We yep. never put a dental leader on him or anything. And Did he, he also like at the beginning? learned when it came to, I think I saw in the before video, what he was had one, something on in the before video of that dog, I believe. No, you're probably thinking of another one. Oh, okay. um, so there is one, there's a miniature schnauzer named Banks. He's sure. the brown and white one that he is wearing a gentle ear at yeah, the beginning. And that's also a very clear, like a good example in the sense of that's just because it. it's on doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, it's not like, again, you can't slap it on your dog and go. Yes. It still has the training. Sure. Um, but there's a black and white miniature schnauzer that I also have um, that I worked with with reactivity and he's not wearing one. Yep. And so, and a lot of the dogs I, I work when it comes to like healing, it's not like my dog pulls. I'm like, great, here's a gentle leader. And so it's, yeah, it's not my fallback, but sure. um, I, the amount of training I put into it towards the owner mm-hmm. is extensive because, because it is a tool that does go on the dog's head. It is crucial to understand that pressure and the leash communication that you're giving to your dog. So when we're doing that, and regardless if I'm using a flat collar or gentle leader or whatever, I preach loose leash healing. Like we don't want to teach our dogs to constantly walk on a tight leash because if we pull against our dogs, they're only going to pull against us. Mm -hmm. And it's even more important when it comes to the head halters where you don't want to have a constant tight leash against your dog because they're going to just start to fight against you even more. And we also don't want to give unintentional corrections to our dogs. Correct. And so a lot of that is when you're using that head halter, it's so important to make sure that you are keeping that loose leash. And if there's a situation in the sense where you need to redirect or give a correction or anything like that, it's not like a pull against your dog and pull them away yeah. from that situation or to just constantly pull against your dogs. Mm. It's just tiny little yep. leash pops in the sense of like, uh-uh, 
yep, yep. right yep. over here, good boy. And then being able to give that reward where you can communicate to them. And it's also in the sense of you might communicate with your dog through the leash a little bit, like if it's on a flat collar, like a little bit more or on a harness. So they like actually feel it. And it's like, when you have a head halter, just the tiniest little taps, like yeah. I use mm -hmm. a finger yeah. on my <laughs> leash. And so, and it's really important making sure that the owners don't overreact and overcorrect yeah. their dog or um, use it incorrectly and cause their dogs to fight against them. Or, yeah. I mean, there's so many different things, but yeah, no, before I even put a head halter on a dog, I have like a 20 to 30 minute conversation sure. with the owner of like, this is what I need you to remember. This is what I need you to understand. And yeah. this is what I need you to do. Yeah. And so, and yeah. then the second that they go to do it, it all goes out the window. <laughs> that's, well, a that's, that's a joke. That's a joke, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Like we'll, we'll do the same thing with some things where we'll spend like a half an hour, like going to go over, like, this is exactly what you're going to do right now. Right. We'll like break down the bill. Like, all right, I got it. I'll be like, all right, repeat it back to me. And they repeat it back to me perfectly. And then they go to do it. And it's like, wait a minute. That's not what we talked about. Like, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, the loose leash is yes. such a freaking important thing. It's uh, a, a, you know another thing again, not solutions by any means, but like we'll have some people that have dog reactive dogs that like the first thing we'll go and take the dog for a walk, and the first thing I'll do is tell them just like hold the handle of your leash for a minute, like just like don't do anything, but just like give the dog some slack right now, and immediately you see like fifty percent of the tension just. Whoosh, just like de-stress for a minute there. And you realize how like, again, just that constant, God, like arm just anchored in this tense position and leash like three inches and the dog just straining into it and stuff like that. How like they just get calloused up to that sensation and how much just frustration in general, forget a trigger, the walk just means to them. You know what I mean? From the constant like nagging yeah. from it. So um, that's, that is such well, a massive like thing. The owner, yeah, it's almost like the owner anticipates the yep. behavior that they're so used to yep. from their dog. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that's the they trigger, trigger it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. 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 And so as owner, as trainers, it's also our responsibility to not only train the owner, but to show them the potential of their dog and yeah. be like, I understand, like, yes, I understand that you're stressed. I understand that you live with this behavior every single day and mm -hmm. you're anticipating it but loose leash yep. and loose leash does not mean a long leash no when i work with my dogs we always work with a four or six foot leash mm -hmm. basic standard leash and a lot of times when i say loose leash to them they're like okay and they drop the entire <laughs> six foot leash and they just hold the handle i'm like nope yeah. like we're giving our dog like three feet two feet but it's a little j in the leash and you relax your arm. Yeah. And so then you're like, you're good. But yeah. yeah, I think it's just kind of like, like you just said, it's like giving that owner like, chill. Yeah. Just Deep relax. Let <laughs> yeah, yeah. me show you what we can do. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah 100%. Uh, okay. So <clears throat> getting to, to another kind of topic that's related to all of this. So another thing that, another thing that I'll hear a lot of we'll say uneducated balance trainers say in response to force-free community stuff is, well, what if the dog doesn't have food drive, right? Obviously, you know, we know that's not the case. If the dog is living, they have food drive, right? <laughs> so obviously though, at the same time, a lot of owners have very, very unhealthy diets for their dogs, whether they're overfeeding them way, way too much, they're feeding entirely too many treats, the dog's severely overweight, you know, any number of variables at play there. How do you address that when you see that with your clients? How do you go about educating them as far as this is how we start to develop a little bit better of motivation with your dog so we could use it? Yes. So when it comes to using 
treats and rewards. I would argue in the sense of if your dog is not food motivated mm-hmm. or often I'll hear, well, my dog will work for a treat inside the house, but the moment I leave and go outside, they don't care anymore. Yep. Well, it's like, okay, the level of distraction is <laughs> obviously outweighs your reward. Yeah. And a lot of times, like just because you're using a food reward, like a basic training treat from the pet store, mm-hmm. doesn't mean your dog seeks value through it. Yep. So when I'm working with my dogs, I always tell that my owners that I work with that I want to have high value rewards for your dog. And what that is to me is whatever drives your dog crazy and sticking with food as an example, whatever drives your dog crazy that they don't get on a daily basis outside of training. So the other part of it is I want my treats to be soft, chew, easy to break, easy to eat. I don't want anything that my dog's going to crunch crumbles fall out of their mouth. They're not going to pick it up for two, three seconds. And then we can move on. I want my dog to take that treat and keep moving. Mm -hmm. And so a really great like example in the sense, like, and I had a client the other day that I didn't even think about this, but it's a very common one is like string cheese. Yep. It is high value. The dog does not get it on a daily basis outside of training. It typically brings dogs, like it kind of drives them crazy, but they have that higher value that they're willing to work for. If you have just like a training treat bag and a lot of times owners are like, yeah, my dog loves it. They eat it inside the house and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, well, when you're around distractions, is it still high value to your dog? And so I would like kind of with that is I would argue the level of value that treat holds for your dog. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So as opposed to looking at as a your dog needs to like these things more, the things they have currently more, they just need to have something that they like more than that. Now, again, getting to yeah. typical owner arguments that we'll hear, hear in relation to this kind of stuff. Well, my dog has a sensitive stomach. They have food allergies. They could only eat this like very, very specific, whatever, science diet or something like that. How do you address that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So if your dog has a sensitive stomach, then what I do is I will go like, say you would, your dog has a sensitive stomach, but not necessarily like the Hill science dietary food. Um, I will go to my local grocery store and you know, that like fresh pet, like the fresh dog food. I saw you post about that recently. Yeah, Yeah. I have a bag of those. Yeah. I take a handful, they're already in little kibbles and it is an extra higher value than your kibble. Yep. And so, but it's still dog food. Sure. So it's not going to upset your dog's stomach necessarily as much as like cheese or chicken. The other thing is if your dog does have a sensitive stomach and with the treats is boiled chicken, boiled chicken and rice is what the vets recommend our dogs when they're sick to kind of reset their stomach. So if you just get a chicken breast, boil it, cube it up, there are your training treats and it's a clean diet for your dog. Yep. Um, if you do have a dog that has like a special dietary restriction in the sense of like hill science or whatever that you need to do that. And I have one, um, our Australian shepherd actually can't have protein. And mm-hmm. so she does the hill science <laughs> food for that. Um, and what I do is I get... There's, 
I mean, for like Aspen, for example, there's like the Purina ones where it's a little bit more structured and I will take a can of the dog food. I'll roll it up in like a, um, saran wrap or whatever, make it into like a tube. I'll like freeze it or refrigerate it. So it becomes a little bit more like stuck. Yeah. I'll dice it up, put it in bags, put it in the freezer. Now her food is her training treats. Yeah. Have you ever, uh, have you ever used, go ahead. Oh, I was just about to say there, I mean, there are other things like carrots sure. or there's like other things in the sense of like, yeah, th- there's, there's, there's a, t- there's a million different options. And again, like, like those are typical, like excuses that we'll hear sometimes from clients, obviously. And I don't mean that like, whatever, you know, we'll, we'll see just some people that just like, there's a reason why they can't use food with their dog constantly, you know, and, and just, there's mm-hmm. a million alternatives, obviously, right. That you could find something for your dog. Have you ever mm-hmm. used, um, have you ever used the happy howies like food rolls before? Are you familiar with those? Oh. Okay. So back uh-uh. when back when I used to do like sport dog stuff, obviously, you know, high value rewards was everything, right? And we would use either Red Barn made a dog food roll or Happy Howie's made a dog food roll. And that shit was like mm. crack to dogs. I mean, it was like out of this oh, world. Yeah, I... There's a tube, you just slice it up into little cubes. And yes, it yes. was it was like the best thing in the world. And it, 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 I, it, it was so easy. It didn't get super slimy and stuff in your hands. And that was always my favorite thing to use. And every now and then we'll recommend that people get if they're looking for like a super high value reward. Um, yes. And I use something very similar in the sense of like going to a pet store, or going yep. to like my local grocery store and getting like the fresh dog food that yep. I like. If yeah. It like meets my food standards or whatever. <laughs> yep. Um, and I will do the exact same thing. I'll dice it up. Yep. I'll put it in bags. And if it is a food where I do, I get a lot <laughs> as trainers, yeah. like the, the kibble hands in our or hand the, yeah, or yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> like, yeah. The, like kind of like that gross feeling. <laughs> we don't care, but I have like clients that are like washing so their hands, like after yeah. they give a treat every time <laughs> with stuff like that, I freeze it. So then when you give it to your dog, like it's not like melting in yeah. your hand. Freezing and that so stuff is a like great idea. Yeah, that's that's a great idea because mm-hmm. I tried to use that stuff once. Like I think Target sells like uh like the fresh pet dog food roll or something like that. And yes. that was like the most disgusting thing I ever <laughs> used at the time I remember. <laughs> and I think I just nixed that one all together. I was like, this shit is gross. <laughs> and I went right back to the happy house. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it is it is crazy how much more how much more motivation you can get out of the dogs and some of that kind of stuff where they will just do fucking anything for that stuff. So Super, super cool. And it's food. So it's not like it's just dog food. So yeah. if you do have a dog that's sensitive stomach, yeah. it's probably good for them. Like, yeah. yeah. Do, do you find yourself ever, though, having the going back to like kind of the original point, ever having the conversation about like adjusting feeding schedules and stuff like that or feeding amounts or if clients are just, just giving way too much stuff that it just seems like nothing has any inherent value to it, like having them adjust things like that? Yes. Um, so there are situations and I think this comes from like being the trainer and being able to understand and read the dog's body language Mm -hmm. and how they're like receiving the praise and what they do, because I do, I work with dogs that I'm not going to lie. Like I'll work with dogs that their fear kind of overrides everything. And they, when a dog becomes overwhelmed, they don't eat. So you're not going to be able to do that. But instead of like shoving a food in their mouth 
maybe it's really focusing on that engagement and focusing more on the dog's engagement with you and your verbal praise yep. and being able to move forward with that. Sure. Um, it can also be in the sense of like, I mean, there are going to be times where the dog gets so distracted or so overwhelmed where even if you did try to use that trait as a distraction, which yeah. I'm like, I always try to remind my owners, like when they're working with their dog and they try and like use it as a lure or distraction, like I'll kind of call out that point because it's like, okay, so that situation ended well. However, this is why, or like, this is what happened. So let's readjust this the next time. Mm -hmm. And so being able to do that, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely like things that come up with those scenarios when you're training But I would argue in the sense of then what does motivate your dog? Like if for whatever reason, you're going to be against using food or your dog, you just want to die on the hill of my dog's (laughs) not food motivated. Yeah, yeah. And you're doing that. Okay. Well, what motivates your dog? Is it a tug toy? Is it a tennis ball? Is it playing tug with your leash? Is it you? Like what motivates your dog? Of course. And use that. Yeah, I like that. <clears throat> um, how long are your training programs usually? Do you have like a set pack, like with say reactivity and stuff? Do you have like a set package you do or do you do it like session by session? So I do, it, it's all custom to the owner and their needs and the dog's needs or what their goals are. Um, so I, my most popular package is a five session Mm -hmm. and most of my videos, like I would argue like 90% of my before and after videos that you see on my Instagram are within those five sessions. So like, it's just a four week training, five session, custom focused on your dog's needs. Um, I do have others when it comes to owners that literally just have like one or two things when it comes to like doing three sessions or if owners are like, I want my CGC, want my dog to be able to travel and I want to be able to do this. It's like, great, let's do seven to 10 sessions. So then we're kind of getting more into it. But when it comes to kind of like the training that I do is regardless of the owner's goals, training is not a quick, like when it comes to the training and the owners come to me, it's not like a, in four weeks, your dog is going to be perfect (laughs) because the thing is like, one, it depends on how the dog is handled in every situation every day. And the consistency of building on like those small wins and the progression. I'm also very big on the whole. It's about progression, not perfection in the sense of reactivity. Isn't like teaching your dog to sit or down. It is a mindset Mm -hmm. and it takes time. And for some dogs, it takes a lot of time. And so it's going to be a longer journey for them and being able to do that. But my goal is during our time together, my goal is to empower the owner, give them the knowledge and the confidence to move on without me. Yep. So like, I mean, if the owner like wants me there longer. I'm right there. I will be with you every step of the way as much as you need. But my goal is to get you to a point where you don't need me and you have the confidence and the knowledge to understand how to handle the situations with your dog and to continue to progress their training. Because even though most like owners are typically very surprised with how much of a difference you can make in four weeks. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so, and it really is all about the type of training that you give your dog 
and how you handle them. And so they're pleasantly surprised, but that doesn't mean their dog's perfect. Yep. There's still more to go after it. And I just tell them, I was like, this is only the beginning and it's only going to get better. Yeah. Just keep going. You're doing great. Yeah. And you know, it's like you were saying, like empower them to take the reins after. Cause like, if you can't do that, like what's the point of the training, right? Like if, and if I do 20 weeks of training with you, but like, and, and the dog is perfect at week 20, but like at week 21, everything falls apart. Cause you don't know what to do. It's like, you know, like yeah. what was, what was the point, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's funny too, yeah. you're saying like the four weeks to a perfect dog kind of thing. It's like just yesterday I was having a conversation with a client about like all of the dumb shit that my dogs do on like a day-to-day basis and like all of the stupid <laughs> situations I found myself in with like all four of them, like just over the years. And they're like, wow, like even you have these issues with your dogs. I was like, yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> like all the time. Right? Yeah, too. Yes. I will take my dog to a training session and they like, Honor might get overly excited yeah. and break place. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'll literally just take her, yeah. put her back, <laughs> remind her what she's doing. And I'll get like the owner be like, it's so good to see that even like your dog makes mistakes. And it's like, yeah. my dog's not a robot. Sure. My dog's mm-hmm. not perfect. They still like, yeah. yeah, it's going to happen. And it's not meant to be perfect. Okay. So I have another question here just in regards to, you know, common misconceptions in like the force-free community and stuff like this. And and also I hope you don't take any of this as me like bashing force-free training by any means, but like one of our, one of, I, I, you know, generalize here, one of our biggest issues with a lot of the force-free community is it seems like, it seems like a lot of them, um, are, you know, basically not one, not showing work and two, um, kind of building their reputation almost on talking about why what we are doing is so bad, right? And one thing that immediately stood out to me with you was like, you show the freaking work, right? Like you, like you clearly can tell that you're getting these results with what you're, you're talking about. And it's, it's really interesting. Like, I feel like there's such a, a lack of that. And, and there's a lot of it, you know, reasons why as far as, well, you shouldn't put the dog in a position to fail so you can get a video of it and this and that. But it's like, I don't know, like the clients I work with, like they don't even need to step out their front door and their dog is freaking out. You know what I mean? So like, why is it so hard to get a good before and after video? And why do you think that you're able to and other people can't, I guess? <laughs> so... Allow me to start with the whole, like, I am not speaking for all of force free trainers. Of course. I am speaking like for myself and kind of like what I think. (laughs) Um, I just don't want anyone coming at me doing that's not what I do. Totally get it. Like there's so many differences within the dog training world. And kind of what you're saying is I think there is such a divide when it comes between force free and balanced dog trainers. Like I've seen so many videos of, both of them, like you were saying, of like course. I've seen videos of force-free trainers attacking balanced dog trainers. And all they do is like punish the dog and the dog lives in fear and all this stuff. And then I've seen a bunch of like other balanced dog trainers where there's a video of like, prove that you can actually do this. Sure. You have no like credibility or anything like that. And it's like, yeah, y'all are both wrong. Like sure. there's a lot that you can learn from both sides from it. Um, but I mean, I would kind of go in the sense of, I, I know what you're talking about in the sense of like trainers saying we don't show before and afters because we don't want to set the dog up to fail just for a video. And 
I don't necessarily go into this and being like, okay, let's get a before. Let's just put your dog in this situation sure. and then we'll get the after. Of course. What I do is I want the owner. So all of my training is in home training. Yep. So I go to the owner's homes. I work with their dogs in the environments that they live in because I am a huge believer that you need to train for the environments your dog is going to be in. Um, and also when you go inside the lion's den, you see everything, yeah. not necessarily like my dog's reactive at home and now I'm in a new facility and now they're kind of caught off guard and they don't know what to do. And you're kind of like taking, not saying that happens every time, sure. but it's definitely like happened. Um, but that first session that I'm with my client and I start to teach the foundation of everything we're going to be going over I also use that time to be like, hey, I want to see how you handle your dog, how you live your everyday life. Yeah. If you go for a walk, how do you do this? How do you leash your dog up? How do you walk your dog? Where are they, your dog? And I have the owner show me their life yeah. in that moment. My camera is rolling the entire time. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And so that is like, I'm walking behind the owner. I'm seeing what they're doing because I'm also like the owners, most of the time, they're not used to training dogs. They don't have experience like we do or anything because we live in it. We see it every day and they don't always notice the things that they're doing. Yeah. And so if I have like my phone, like rolling and I see these situations, that video isn't just like, I'm not in my head. I'm like, Ooh, yeah. this is going to be a really great before and after. Of course. That video to me, I can play back and I can be like, do you see this right here? Do you see when you pulled up tight at this moment and yeah. that's the moment the dog reacted. And when the owner sees themselves doing it, it clicks. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. The other part of it is why I really like doing with like, when it comes to recording the owners from the beginning is our owners live with their dogs every single day. So they see the good, the bad, all of that. Yeah but they don't see the progressional the change progress. that yeah. we see. So mm -hmm. like for me, I go and I work with my owners once a week and in their minds, they might be seeing little bits of change, but it's really not that drastic. But when I see them, I'm like, wow, this is great. Like this is a huge change. And I've shown owners before in the past of like their own, <laughs> the before and after videos. And they're like, oh my God, that's incredible. Like, yeah. that's the motivation I needed. Like I am making a difference and I yeah. am changing. Like my dog's behavior is changing. Yeah. And so it, it helps them as well. Yeah. And so it comes to that. And so while I understand in the sense of not setting the dog up in a situation just for the video, yeah. there are other ways to go about it where you can still see what's happening and you can still show that before and after, because yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie, like Force-free training, positive reinforcement, it is not a quick fix. No, it yeah. is not something where but none is. you're going you know, to balance see balance training results. isn't either. Yeah. Yeah. You're <laughs> right. None is. Um, but I, I feel like even you can agree in the sense of like board and trains when they're like off-leash training in two weeks. I yeah, like I would agree. You're you're using the collars, you're using the tools that the dog does with positive reinforcement. It's like, yeah, we can do off-leash training in four to six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's the same results, just a little bit longer in yeah. a different training, um, depending on how much you put into it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yes, I understand the people that are saying like, I don't rely on before and after videos for that, but sure. it's also 
before and after videos just isn't for the gram before no. and after videos is for the owners to build their confidence to show them the difference that yeah. they're making and the progression that their dogs are making I, I think they're so empowering to some people too like forget the the people in the actual video for a minute like I've had so many people call us and, and have the conversation of like, I was literally scheduled to euthanize my dog, right? Over A, B, C, or D issue because I didn't think that there was any sort of possibility of help with it. But because I now see that there are other dogs like my dog out there that are finding some sort of help, right? Like it, it makes them feel confident that they can actually achieve a more manageable life with their dog. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so, so yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. And that, that's why I've always felt they're so important is like, obviously we could get into and, and you know, you're right. Like I'm, I'm definitely guilty of it too, as far as the argument back and forth, uh, amongst both sides of like, well, like you're not showing it well, like you're showing it and hiding things or this or that. Right. Um, but like they're, they're just so powerful to the client. I feel like, you know, for like marketing is everything in this industry, especially with how many dog trainers there are out there. And especially since it's an unregulated industry and anybody could say that they could help with these problems. And then we see people that spend thousands and thousands of dollars with this trainer and then this trainer and then this trainer, and then they don't get the results. And it's like, there's gotta be some sort of mm -hmm. like, we can actually help you with this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's interesting. And then, yes. you know, you brought up the board and train, um, for example, right. I completely agree with you with that is, you know, from a training standpoint, from a business owner standpoint, board and train, you could condense into such a short amount of time. Like there's so many people out there that do like one week board and train, two week board and train, stuff like that. And it is all like, we're just going to pressure the shit out of the dog to get some visual results here and then send the dog home and guarantee, yeah, awfully training and stuff like that in two weeks. And it's interesting, like our we do we obviously do board and trains as well as one-on-one -on -one classes our board and trains are are significantly longer and that's one thing i've tried to like fight against in the board and train environment is that we do them longer because like if i have your dog for an extended period of time i have all of the flexibility in the world to do things the way that i want to do things which means that frankly we're using 10x more positive reinforcement and all that kind of stuff with our board and trains than we ever would in our one-on-ones which again is a whole separate conversation but um i have the flexibility to do that and and i enjoy doing that so much more with the dogs and you know when people call and say well you know why do you do five weeks as opposed to this place that does two weeks and it's like because i want to be able to do because i want to be able to do that you know yeah. uh, but it is you know it's, it's, yeah. a, it's very I conflicting mean, yeah yeah absolutely and there are like and I mean, don't get me wrong. There are incredible trainers that sure. only do board and train. Um, and I, I've talked to these trainers and I've like learned from the trainers as well and everything. But it's also like the funny thing that they've all kind of had in common is they do not guarantee anything yep. in the sense of like a couple of things. For one, they don't do like one week training sessions. No. There's not a lot you can teach a dog in one week nope. and have it like, stick Retained. forever yeah. mm -hmm. but the other thing is and why i like why i've based proper paws and everything that i do around training the owners how to train the dogs is i really believe that if we expect our dogs to change their behaviors we also have to change ours yeah. because if the owner doesn't understand the how or the why yeah. in how to handle their dog in certain situations and they just stick to the behaviors that they have been doing then that dog is eventually going to regress and go back to the behaviors that they were doing. Yep. And so being able to do that. And so, and like I said, like I've talked to board and train trainers and 
in their contracts and in their communications with the owners is like, you need to stick with this and keep doing it or it won't like continue throughout the dog's lives. The upkeep is so important and the understanding on how to handle your dog is so important. But I also like, I've had people reach out to me like, well, I sent my dog to a board and train for one week and they were good for a couple of days. And then they went back to what they were. And I was like, one week is nothing. And so, so especially like when they were like, I sent my puppy to a one week calm puppy program and I'm like 12 weeks old. What the heck is that? Yeah. yeah. What is that? A hundred percent. That, that shit drives me crazy. Um, yeah, I, I use the example of like with my dogs, like they've been training for a very long time at this point. But if I were to just like ship you off with one of them, you'd be calling me back in 24 hours to come pick them up because like <laughs> training is not this thing that you just like put on the dog and then the dog is a trained dog, right? It's a, it's a relationship you develop with them. It's a communication system that you develop with them. Um, and yeah, you, you have to 100%. learn it, you know, and that's the, that's the hard part with board and train programs, I think is, is being so freaking black and white with the person where they really understand that, you know, cause you could tell them it all day long, but still inevitably you're going to have the person that calls you two days after the dog goes home and be like, nothing's working. This is your fault. And it's like, well, actually it's probably your fault because you're probably doing something incorrect. And that's why we provide a year of follow-up classes for you is to teach you all of those things, you know? So yeah, that's, that's definitely the hard part with things. Yeah. And with my dogs and my clients, like I do, I've had people reach out to me that I didn't work with just because of when they reach out to me is they were asking for guarantees and they were asking for like, um, anything of like wanting quick fixes and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, yeah. no, this isn't, this isn't really the training for you. Yeah. Um, or I'm not the trainer for you, I should say, <clears throat> but it is a lot where I do, I work with my clients, all of them know, all of them hear it from me every single day, all the time is like, if there is anything you need, do yep. not hesitate to reach out to me We're because I rather them send me a video every single day of them practicing with their dog and me potentially like tweaking a couple of things, then waiting an entire week to see them again and then having to like readjust stuff. And so like my clients, like they know, like I am here for you. And even after our training, I still like, I want updates. I want wins. If you're having a hard time, like reach out to me, let me know what you need. What can I help you with? And I do like the alumni classes and stuff. And so people who had worked with me, like we now do group training with other alumni dogs and being able to have that, but having the resources for the owners is really important. Cause again, like a lot of times I'll be working with them and they'll be like, it's so natural when you do it. And it's like, yeah, I've been doing it for 22 years. Yep. Like don't compare. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here to teach you like everything that I know, but I don't want you to be like, oh, I don't do it exactly like that. It's like, it's not going to be exact. We each have our own little like, characteristics but yeah yeah, no it's giving that support to the owners it's teaching them that it's not going to be a quick fix it's teaching them that this is building a bond a relationship a two-way road of like respect between you and your dogs and then getting to that training goal that you ultimately had that you probably thought was never possible yeah one of my favorite things that we uh 
four years ago now switched to is we switched to obviously we're a kennel as well so we do boarding we do daycare we do do like day enrichment not standard daycare um and you know different services like that and when we switched to making it client exclusive where it's like only our training clients can come and utilize these services with us it created such a cool community where like you know, we'll see these people like mm-hmm. five years post-training, six years post-training, and we'll watch this dog continue to develop with the owner. And when they come and pick up the dog from day enrichment, you know, we could watch them leave and be like, hey, make sure you're still doing this or make sure you're adjusting this and just kind of keep things fresh and keep that extra set of eyes on things. And uh, it, it's really just been like our clients, I feel like feel so much more like empowered and like they could long-term keep things the way that they need to keep them. So that stuff is, is so important. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And with the whole building a community, I've had clients where clients live in the same neighborhoods yeah. as each other. And so I connect them and they yeah. use each other as like training opportunities. Like let's go for a walk. Let's work on heel. Let's work on distraction training. Like yeah, they come together. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I know we don't have a ton more time here. I just had one more question here. So <clears throat> obviously no, you guys are good. a big reason, are you in like a major rush right now? I mean, I don't want to keep you forever, obviously, no, but this is, totally this is good. I'm enjoying this. You're so. fine. <laughs> um, okay. So, I am too. so, you know, obviously a big reason why I wanted to do this. And like we talked about yesterday is I want to figure out how we can continue to help each other with things. I think there's so much to your point that can be learned from that side of the realm and vice versa. You know, I think both sides here, what, what sorts of things, where, where has your relationship with the balance training community been over the years? Cause I know, I, th- I think I saw even the other day you had like a consult with, uh, uh, I forgot what her name was, but a big name trainer, obviously that I think is a, a balance trainer as well. What sorts of things yeah. are you looking to learn from those types of individuals, obviously? And how do you think we can help incorporate more, you know, force-free techniques into our training to help with things? Yeah. Um, so yeah, my, over the years I have talked to and kind of like worked with other trainers and it's kind of funny because the majority of them are balanced dog trainers and the way I kind of view it and the way I set up is, did you ever watch the documentary social dilemma? No, but everybody has told me I should. (laughs) Have you watched that Josh? Uh -uh. You should. It's great. I've heard it's, I've heard it's really good. The concept of Social Dilemma, the documentary, is we only follow or only pay attention to people that share similar views to our own. So then ultimately, social media starts giving us information that only validates our own opinions. Sure. So after watching that show, what I ended up doing is yes, I am a choice-based positive reinforcement trainer, but I started following balanced dog trainers to also see that side of things. So my feed wasn't just filled with the opinions I already hold, because I'm not going to learn more when it comes Mm. to, if I'm only seeing the stuff that validates what I already know, I want to learn more. Um, and yes, I have reached out to other trainers, my husband is so sweet for my birthdays. He actually sets up like That's consultations cool. with other trainers for me as like gifts, as like experiences. So then I can just continue to meet new people. Yeah. Um, and I absolutely love it. And so I've, I've talked to a number of people across the country and the type of training that they do, but it's not always like when I reach out to these owners it's, or trainers, it's not always like, 
how do you train a dog in X situation? Of course. It's a lot of times I'm reaching out to them in the sense of how do you handle clients in this situation? How did you grow your business to be as successful as it is? How did you do X, Y, Z? And it's kind of like more on the back end. Yeah. Um, And when we do have like time and it comes to being able to communicate and work with each other, when it comes to how to handle a certain dog, using that opportunity to kind of get a different point of view from another trainer and being like, I have this dog. It's not really like, it's kind of getting there, but it's not really getting this, like the results that we want. What do you think about that? Then you get another perspective and you kind of get a new view that you might not have thought from previously that you can apply to that dog. And I'm not saying reach out to another trainer and change your whole training (laughs) method. Of course. But maybe it could be in the sense of you might be missing something that they're like, oh yeah, I dealt with this last week. Here's what I did that worked. And you're like, oh, awesome. Like I can apply that in X, Y, Z and be able to do that. But I think a lot of the times as trainers, like, I mean, I would say like, like four or five years ago or whatever, as a trainer, you're like, well, I'm supposed to be the professional. I'm supposed to know (laughs) like what to do, when to do it. And it's going to look really weird for a dog trainer to reach out to a dog trainer for help. Sure. Because then it's like, well, maybe they'll think I don't know what I'm doing or whatever you might be telling yourself inside your head. But the thing is like, you like, we want to continuously learn and educate ourselves because the dog training world, like you said, it is an unregulated place, but there are so many different things that are constantly changing and becoming new within the dog training world. Like you're saying, like old school is like very alpha show them who's boss. Here's a prong collar, like pull up when they react. And it's like, or like one of the old, old ones is like, if your dog pulls on leash, stop moving. They'll eventually give up. And it's like, nope, yeah. no, they will not. Because even if they do chill out, the moment you start walking again, they're going to start pulling yep. again. Yep. For and sure. so there's a lot of stuff that people like believe like this is what training is. And it has changed yep. a lot over the years. And we need to continue to educate ourselves. And for me, it's kind of funny because going like thinking back to the trainers I've reached out to and talked to and met and built relationships with, I'm not going to lie. They're like all like majority of them are balanced dog trainers. And so I kind of like thinking about that. I'm like, Oh, I'm kind of the odd man out when it comes to that, but it's still, I mean, there's still so much value from both sides of it. I think the open mind side of things is really, really important. And just not getting too in your head. Excuse me. Oof. You're right. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Uh, not getting like, not getting too in your head as far as like, you know, like that is wrong because they disagree with me. You know what I mean? Like you can't get into that trap, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and also obviously like, I think a lot of the more closed-minded balance trainers that I see, because I work with a lot of younger balance trainers, uh, are typically the people that started off really idolizing like one polar extreme of the spectrum. (laughs) You know what I mean? And as opposed to like, if you look at like what true, like when I look at like true balanced training, I really look at the people that have such a deep respect for both sides of just the positive and just the negative of things. Like, like when I first started getting into training, my idol was like Michael Ellis. I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Ellis or not, but like he was like the pinnacle of like, oh my God, 
God, this is what a dog trainer is. You know what I mean? And I really, in my mind, was like, you know, this is really cool. Like, he's utilizing both ends of the spectrum. It's primarily the positive reinforcement, but he understands, you know, how to deliver corrections and do it in a fair way and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I got to see how much power there was behind that kind of stuff, you know? Uh, and I think, you know, because the industry is getting easier and easier and easier to get involved in, a lot of new trainers are just looking at the quote unquote easiest ways of training the dog, right? Mm -hmm. Which a lot of times I think that one of my trainers had a, a great point a couple of weeks ago. She said, you know, it takes a lot more skill to be a bad force-free trainer than it does to be a bad balanced trainer or a bad e-collar trainer or something like that. Implying that, you know, understanding the positive side of things sometimes can be a lot more challenging for a trainer, but it's so important still, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know, I don't know where I'm going with that. Obviously I'm kind of just rambling there, but, um, I, I, I think that, you know, really, you know, understanding that there is stuff to be learned from both sides. is just so important with stuff and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to reach out to those people and have conversations with those people about those things. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And another thing that I kind of noticed is by following other balanced dog trainers, Yeah is, and I mean, I follow dog trainers, like I follow dog trainers in the sense of like, wow, I would love to like spend a day and learning about the protection dogs or sure. like the competitive training that you did and stuff like that. Like I've never been in that world. I sure. never even came close to that world, but I still follow those trainers where I'm like, that's badass. Sure. I was like, that's really cool. Like our dogs have so much capabilities to them, but when I'm working and following trainers that I don't apply their methods they also teach us in the sense of like, I've watched videos and I'm like, okay, that was a fantastic way to explain that situation. Yep. Or that wasn't a fantastic way to have like the correlation that a client would very easily be able to understand. The articulation and of so it. And so even yeah. though you might not like, I'm not going to watch like a balanced dog trainer and be like, I need to start using new colors tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to watch a balanced dog trainer. I'm like, yeah, you know what you're doing. I love the way you phrased that. I love the way you explained yeah. it. And that's my, what yeah. I take. And in the sense of like understanding and like when they explain like <clears throat> why's and how's, yeah. they might be explaining it in a way that even as a trainer, you didn't really think of. And yeah. it's like, oh, okay. Like yeah. that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I think that that's the one thing like people like, I'll get asked like, you know, like who do you look up to or who do you follow and this and that? What are you looking to get out of people? You know, once you become more established in what you're doing and I tell everybody the articulation and the way things are explained to the clients is everything you need to continue learning because that's the variable yeah. that dictates mm -hmm. the success is if you can get clients to deeply understand the concepts you're trying to teach them. Yeah. So yeah, I completely agree yes. with that. Yeah. Do, you, do you know Zach George? Everybody knows Zach George. I, oh, I, I don't know him, know him. Yeah, but I know yeah, yeah. Him. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of funny because the, the, he said, because we reacted to his YouTube video about balance training uh, recently. And one of the things that I love that he said was, no matter what you're doing, we're all trying to achieve the same goal. And it's to, you know, get these yes. people yeah. in a good place with their dogs, you know? Yeah. And at the end of the day, we can all learn wow. something from each other, you know, and yep. that's why this has been great because I think it just shows we all have more in common than we don't have in common, you know? Yeah. 
A hundred percent. I mean, we, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you brought up Susan Garrett. Like I remember a long, I believe it was Susan Garrett who was on forever ago, did uh, an episode of like the Tim Ferriss podcast, which was like a, a podcast I used to listen to all the yes. time. And I remember listening to it like Dude, when I, when I was first that. getting involved in stuff and I was like, man, like this is a great episode, you know, and, and same deal, a lot it to was. learn uh, about things on there. Um, and, uh, God, there was another one recently that, who was it? Oh yeah. We, we, we yeah, read, was, was like phenomenal five years ago yeah, and yeah. I still send it to clients. It, yeah. it was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Phenomenal. Uh, and also like Tim is just such a great interviewer and like asks such good questions about things mm-hmm. that, yeah, that was a great one. But, uh, we, we read an article by, I think it was, a uh, uh, Dr. Sophia Yin, uh, on like dog training questions she gets asked frequently. And we read it for the intent of like, let's see how many of these answers we agree with. And I think it was like literally like 90% of the answers were like, yeah, yeah. that's like a hundred percent spot on as far as the things that you're yep. saying, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that, yeah. you know, continuing to fight to, to have those conversations and learn things from each other and just figure out like when you see something that you like, don't look at like, do I, you know, am I perfectly aligned with this person or not? Look at like, what is it that I like about this? What can I learn from this person? You know? And like I said, that's what I really appreciate this yeah. conversation. This has been, uh, this has been phenomenal. Like, you're, you know, obviously you don't need me to say it, but you're crushing it right now. And, uh, obviously <laughs> you're, you've been very successful with what you've done so far. So, um, Josh, you have any follow questions on anything? No, that was amazing. Yeah, super good. Josh is a Josh is our media guy here. He's not a trainer, so he provides like layman's insight into things. Yeah. So, I love it. Yeah. I love it because I mean, sometimes you just need those questions where it's like for us, like if you're talking yeah. to another trainer, it's like, yeah, 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 I already like I know I understand, but then like if we have like if you guys have listeners that aren't trainers, yep, you're like wait, what? And so it's yeah. like going back. But you, no. you guys did a great Absolutely. job. Just. Like, yeah, you guys did a great job, like, uh, I guess, explaining everything in a, in a way that I could tell. So thanks, Josh. Yeah, yeah. Some sometimes there's like some no. like sometimes people get it. Yeah, he'll get real scientific, and I'm like, okay, this is what he means, you know. <laughs> um, awesome. Uh, do you so so you know? Is there anything else that any other points you want to throw out there with stuff? Anything you want people to know about you, where they can find you, all that good stuff? Any parting words? Uh, sure. I mean, yeah. If anyone is wanting, like my Instagram is the most extensive platform that I use when it comes to videos, how to's tips before and afters, all of that, um, which the handle is at proper pause SLC. Um, and so obviously like I do also do virtual training or consultation. So if anyone's interested in that, like you can always go either to my Instagram, which has a link to my website or my website is proper-pause.com um, and go there for more information. But yeah, if anyone ever has any questions, I am always like, if you reach out via Instagram or email or text or whatever, it's me who you get. And so, cause it's, it's myself running this right now um, with the help of my husband, but yeah, so no, absolutely. And it really is like, I've, I've loved this conversation. Like this conversation is great because like you guys said, there really is a defi- like a divide in the dog training community, which is, it's unfortunate, but you have people that are like very far off on each side, just like everything else in the world, but trying to find like that in between and kind of like the next nice balance between both sides. I've worked with so many people where they've worked with other trainers and that other trainer was either like way far 
balanced or way far positive and they didn't really see the results that they wanted, nor was it something that they really liked yeah. and wanted to do. Um, and yeah, I, I think when it comes to like the training, I haven't met many choice-based trainers that kind of handle the things that I do. Um, but I'm really hoping that like one day there's, there's more. Cause it, I really do. I kind of view it as like a nice in between yeah. when it comes to the two different worlds. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I just think like being able to just help each other and work with each other and view on both sides. Cause like you said, we are here all with the same purpose, yep. which is to help the dog and get to the dog. And the whole point of safe or training is safety yep. and being able to set our dogs up for success, but every dog is going to learn different. So one training might not work for one while the other one does. So yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. I, uh, I appreciate it. So, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have to do this again at some point. I have a list of like 17 other questions here that are completely off topic from anything we discussed <laughs> yeah. that I think would be really interesting uh, to get into, but I, yeah, no, I think, yeah, I had a, I had a question too, because, uh, he's been doing uh virtual consults. Have, is that something you do? That's what or? She said. I didn't hear that. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. So that's one. Oh yeah. 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 No, <laughs> yeah. I do. Yeah. Cause yes. It, yeah. Yeah. He was kind of against it, but it, you know, and, and, I shied yeah. away from them for a long time, uh, just because I feel like like when COVID hit, like they were like the most popular thing ever, and I was just like, ah, I don't know, and I never really dabbled into them. And as soon as I started doing them, I like fell in love with them. I was like, this is great because it all of the emphasis is just on the owner. It's like I don't even like see the dog in half of them. It's like we're just talking about what's going on with your life and how you could make incremental adjustments to move you in the right direction. So cool, perfect. I didn't hear that. I'm sorry. Yeah, and I do. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally fine, Josh. Um, the, a lot of, with the virtual training, depending on the type of training that the owner is doing, I will actually do their entire training virtually. Yeah. And so, and I've awesome. worked with people across the country and if it's like basic obedience and boundaries and place and all stuff like that, then we can do your entire training virtually. And yeah. I will work with you with your dogs and I will use my dogs as examples and I will walk you through it. Mm -hmm. Um, but if it's something that's more along the lines of like, reactivity or aggression, then it definitely is more of that consultation because, and being able to communicate with them, like, this is what you would want to do yeah. moving forward and what you want to, or what you need to understand, because there are levels of training that you can't do virtually because like, as a trainer, you can't handle the dog. You can't like yeah. mm -hmm. physically show what to do. Um, and the other thing is like, I'm not going to virtually tell a client, be like, great, take your dog to a dog park, set me up on your iPhone, yeah, right. <laughs> and I will try to walk you through this. Yeah. You got to be realistic on something. Yeah. Um, but yes, consultations are fantastic. Or even just using that time as like another trainer to reach out to another trainer and talk to them like what I've been doing. Yeah. Um, or even just reaching out to a trainer. I have clients that will set up time with me. And they will just literally go through like their laundry list mm -hmm. of behavioral issues that they're having and how they handle it. And I'm like, great, next time, this is what I want you to do instead. Yep. And they're like, oh my God, I didn't even think about that. Yep. And they're like writing down notes and everything. And so then it's like, they'll like message me like two, three weeks later and be like, this has changed my life. And yep. it's just that little tweak to like how the handler or how the owners are handling their dog. Yeah. That makes the difference. It really is more the owner than the dog half the time. Yep, it's yep. funny. So awesome. Well, I it really is. appreciate your time, Taylor. Um, like I said, we'll have to do this again. Absolutely.
uh, I'll send you I'll send you over all the links and stuff to this once it's live and we usually make clips and stuff out of it you're welcome to use whatever you want so yeah cool. no that sounds great thank you guys I really appreciate it. I mean mm-hmm. let me know if y'all want to do another 100%. podcast I'm so down oh yeah cool for sure. all right well we appreciate it we'll talk to you soon all right bye you guys nice sick man that, that was, was a good great. one yeah Let's see if I can pause this thing.